Today's reading of scripture comes from the book of Joshua, chapter 20, verses 1 through 9. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place, and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand, because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is high priest at the time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home to the town from which he fled. So they set apart Kadesh in Galilee in the hill country of Naphtali, and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. And beyond the Jordan east of Jericho, they appointed Bezer in the wilderness on the tableland from the tribe of Reuben, and Ramoth in Gilead from the tribe of Gad, and Golan in Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the strangers sojourning among them, that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there, so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood till he stood before the congregation. This is God's word. Amen. Well, we're in Joshua 20 and 21, and whenever I uh, first approach these passages, I remind myself that all scriptures God breathed because I wouldn't have written some aspects of it um, like these parts, or at least chosen these parts um, to preach on, but since I have such confidence that it's God's word, then we go straight through it. And today is going to be perhaps a little more uh, educational and, and I guess just full of a lot of information, so you're going to have to hang with me. In Joshua 20 and 21 is where we're going to remain, but if you would turn back a couple books into Numbers, uh, 34 and 35, it's the last couple chapters of Numbers, um, before Joshua, this is to give some context and maybe set the stage for where we're going, before Joshua assumed leadership and Moses had died and he was going to lead uh, the Israelites into Canaan, to the promised land, Moses commanded certain things for them to do when they came into the promised land, and he would say that oftentimes. He would say, when you come into Canaan, when you come into the land, do these things. And so at the end of Numbers, which is often called the, uh, by, the, by the Jewish culture the rebellion in the wilderness, because uh, it records Numbers 13 and 14 is where they refuse to go into the promised land. So at the very end of Numbers, Moses describes kind of the plan of attack not as how to give conquest or how to battle, but after all the battles have taken place and once they have conquered the land, here's what they're supposed to do. And so he lays out over two chapters that's been repeated before, stated a couple times, kind of the the parameters of what they're going to do. And so I'm going to kind of bounce through these chapters and just go through different uh, verses to give context to where we're going. In chapter 34 of Numbers, verses 1 and 2, begins by talking about boundaries, and it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel, and say to them, 
when you enter the land of Canaan, and in parenthetical, this is the land that shall fall to you for an inheritance, the land of Canaan, as defined by its borders. And it proceeds to define the geographic borders for all of the land that is uh, the promised land that is Israel. Then, if you skip ahead to verse 16 in the same chapter 34, it begins by talking about leaders. And it says in verse 16, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, These are the names of the men who shall divide the land to you for inheritance, Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun. And you shall take one chief from every tribe to divide the land for inheritance. And these are the names of the men. God gets very specific and says, these are the leaders. These leaders will have the responsibility and role of dividing the land. So he goes from here are the boundaries, and when you get in there, here are the leaders. Then he goes to the next step, which takes us to chapter 35, the first few verses, where he talks about the priesthood after all the land has been distributed. It says, command the people of Israel to give to the Levites some of the inheritance of their possessions as cities for them to dwell in. That will be in distinction as to land. So he's saying, give cities for them to dwell in. You shall give, them, or give to the Levites pasture lands around the cities. And the cities shall be theirs to dwell in, and their pasture lands shall be for their cattle and for their livestock and for all their beasts. So he says, once the land has been defined by its borders, and once it's been distributed into smaller pieces, then you distribute the Levites, the priests, throughout the land in those particular cities. And then finally, in verse 11 of chapter 35, it says, Then you shall select cities to be the cities of refuge for you. The thing about these, these are still Levitical cities, so we're really talking about the same thing. The Levitical cities and the refuge cities are kind of together, uh, but they have a specific role for these six. It says, they shall select cities to be the cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer who kills any person without intent may flee there. So what you have is a breakdown that I think is very helpful for us just in how God builds or builds our communities, whether it be our family, our home, or even church as you're gathering people. And he goes through, I think, somewhat of a, a sequential, um, a well-organized pattern here that we can get principles from. You begin by determining the boundaries. And we've talked about this last couple, last couple weeks. Like, what is the portion? And, and how do I know where the boundaries that my God-given boundaries are and where they are not? So I make sure I live fully in what God has given me, whether sometimes we live too, too little and sometimes we extend and go over the boundaries God has given us. Uh, what has He given to me to, to care for, to steward, and to live in joyfully? It is a, it's supposed to be a gift and a blessing. And then once you have that portion figured out of what you are called to do, required to do, to steward, we identify leadership within that portion. Like whose job is what? What are the roles within that portion? What are the responsibilities within that portion? Makes sense if you talk about a marriage. There is a particular role for a husband, a particular role for a wife, and a particular role for children. And all those things help to define and make that portion healthy and grow and thrive as God would have it. And then... As a priesthood of believers is what God calls those who are Christians, those whom Jesus has saved. As a priesthood of believers, we recognize or should recognize that fulfilling our roles and responsibilities, even within our portion, the end of that is not just to have a fulfilling and responsible life. That's a nice benefit and a hope, but the true intent behind all of that is that it's an act of worship to God. We 
as we see with Israel, he told that I'm going to free you from slavery, take you out of this land, and make you worshipers. That was the goal. And so we are to see this entire experience of living as an act of worship. We are here to glorify God and to enjoy Him. That is the purpose and meaning of our lives. So we cannot worship, though, God without purity. We will worship and do worship many things. All kinds of idols come in. There's like an idol of the month club that we're all members of, right? So sometimes we have huge major idols that we experience victory over, but that doesn't mean that we are ever idolatrous ever again. I do believe, and it's been said before, we have a worship disorder. And so we are to worship purely God. Well, to do that, God has given His Word, and at this time with Israel, He gave His law to help them do that. That included sacrifice and atonement for sins. But He gave His Word so that they understood what it meant to purely worship God, and knowing they didn't, they had sacrifice for sins to take care of it. As Christians, we have the law of God written now on our hearts, so that all that we think and say and do is supposed to be governed by and submitted to the Word of God. Now, if anything gets out of whack, what does that mean? Anything in our lives, in our relationships. And out of whack, I mean, is it ever unhealthy or unfulfilling? If your relationships or the portions, the communities that you're in, whether that be in a church, with a family, a home, a marriage, whatever it is, if it becomes unhealthy or unfulfilling, that is a result of one of these things, I believe, being broken. Sometimes it's that you don't understand what boundaries you're actually supposed to be living in. So it's not fulfilling, or perhaps it's unhealthy if you've extended it. Sometimes it's because no one understands what their job is. The husband's acting like the wife, the wife acting like the husband, and then all things are messed up. So sometimes that's a problem, understanding what are the roles that God has called me to as a son, daughter, man, woman, husband, wife, father, mother. Sometimes, though, maybe this is where it all starts, it's a result of impure worship. Where you are not submit, you are being spiritual, but your spirituality is not governed by the Word of God, it's governed by your emotions, your experience, whatever. So as we begin to say, like, as I'm building my home, as, I, as we are leading this church, you can begin to see where the problem is with as we use the land that God has created as a principled guide for what we're to do. So, what we see here is the closure of that land and what is, I think, probably most important in preserving purity of worship in this land. Joshua, at this point, has distributed all the land, which means, as Moses commanded, he had identified leaders to do that. So he's got the borders defined. He has the leaders helping to define do that. And now, as it comes back full circle to basically take us to a place where they're going to preserve the purity of worship in this land and help them to live purely. And that's why we see a lot of talk about the justice of God, the law of God, being the cities of refuge and those responsible to ensure the justice, which is going to be the priests. This book, The Lord's Army... The study, if you will, is not about just a big war for God, like Christian jihad. It's not what it is. What it is, is a war over the purity of worship that took place, yes, back in land, but now takes place right here. 
It says in the first couple of verses of chapter 20, which we're already read, but I'll remind the first couple here. It says, The Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge, of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. You shall flee to one of those cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate at the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. And they shall take him into the city and give him a place and he shall remain with them. So the cities of refuge, we'll talk about what those are. They were part of or aspect of God's law, commanded by God to be uh, there when they came into the land. We need to understand, as we saw in the life of Achan, that the presence of sin in the land, anywhere in the land, has an impact on all of the community and all of the family. And it will not only have a spiritual impact, but it literally has a physical impact, has physical ramifications, it has uh, manifestations that destroy, literally, families, relationships, and everything else. This could happen two ways. First, when we talk about cities refuge, which were really intended for murderers, I'm sorry, those who kill, and there's two types of killing, kind of murderer and manslaughter. Okay? The refusal, if Israel refused to kill the guilty, refused to shed the blood of the guilty of those deserving, according to God's law, of punishment, deserving of death, a murderer, someone who was motivated, waiting, planning, killed an innocent person. Innocent, though they may think they're guilty of something. If they did not shed that person's blood, that would be disobedience to God's law. If they disobeyed God's law, they would bring, God said, cursings and wrath upon themselves for not obeying God's law. So they were required, if someone murdered, to kill. Well, what if they showed... They, couldn't, they didn't have the option to show grace to that person. By God, they would be disobeying God's law. The same respect that if they shed innocent blood, so in this case, if they killed somebody who did not deserve to die, they, in this case, killed someone accidentally, they would again be disobeying God's word, and all of the land and their individual tribes and their families would accrue the wrath of God. Now, so that they could kind of preserve this, he provides these cities for those who killed someone accidentally. So if they accidentally killed somebody, driving their camel and ran over somebody, right, they would, I don't know what that would be called, camel side or something, right? They would flee to these cities and they would come to the gate, because that's where the elders of the city would remain, typically. Tell them his case. I accidentally ran over someone with my camel, and this guy, his brother, Jethro, is coming to kill me because he's really upset. And they would say, all right, and they would let him in, and he would be, by law, protected until they judged the case. Like, okay, let's see what happened. And even if they judged the case, there were consequences, but we'll get to that. So you go, well, what's an accidental death? Well, if you go to the book of Deuteronomy, which is just one book back from Joshua, chapter 19 gives an example. Like, well, what's an accidental death? Because we have that kind of discussion in our laws today, not always to the right conclusion in my, well, unless you live in Texas. Now, Deuteronomy 19, 
Gotta love Texas. Chapter 19, verse 4 says this. This is the provision for the manslayer who by fleeing there may save his life. If anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally without having hated him in the past, and God knowing how men think, what do you mean unintentionally? As when, verse 5, someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood, and his hand swings an axe to cut down a tree, and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he may flee to one of these cities and live, lest the avenger of blood in hot anger pursue the manslayer and overtake him because the way is long and strike him fatally, though the man did not deserve to die since he had not hated his neighbor in the past. What we're talking about is motive. That's how we use it in our legal terms today. Okay? So the guy's chopping wood. It's like, poof, you know, axe head flies off. Kills his friend or his neighbor. Uh-oh. Runs. Right? He runs to the city. He is safe in the city. Now, they were strategically placed, these cities, because he said he wasn't too far away. So the cities were strategically placed uh, throughout the land. And you can see they actually measured the, those circles. That those are the distances where they could be safe. That was considered the city area. So they would go to these places, eventually get into the city. And those are the boundaries of it. Now, there were three on the east side, and then three on the west side, okay? And they were up north, middle, and south, distributed so that they were, you know, accessible from all places or from most places that um, might need them. Now, the cities of refuge were not intended to have or provide a way for someone to escape justice, They were actually a means of justice, and they were intended to prevent vengeance. Now, a blood relative, as he said, in in the heat of anger, might end up killing somebody who obviously was not deserving of killing. And so they're trying to save from those kind of passionate moments. And it's interesting, I think, maybe you don't, for the cities of refuge to exist at all, especially in the book of Joshua, when it looks like God is pretty vengeful. It appears that, I mean, this book of Joshua is one of the most violent books of the Bible. Okay? It is, if you actually read it, it might be one of the reasons why I couldn't find a lot of pastors done series on it. Because there's some stuff that if you go verse by verse, you go, what are you going to do with that? And it's disturbing. It is. Now, the first ten chapters manifest the wrath of a holy God who is completely other, who is not like us at all, who is perfect in every way, not a perfect human, perfect God, perfect everything, a holy God. His wrath is manifested against sin in this book through the killing of men, women, and children. Disturbing. If you're not disturbed, something's wrong with you. Doesn't mean you hate it or enjoy it, it just means it, it causes you to pause. Now, it is these disturbing passages in this book, even, that have given some the cause that they will say to reject the vengeful Old Testament God or Christianity altogether. It's pretty common by those who want to find issues with the Bible or issues with, with God. 
But it's against this brutal backdrop that you have the cities of refuge, which I think is quite interesting. And what I find, I guess, intriguing about it is that just when it seems that many would argue that God has little concern for life and seems very vengeful, we see that God's justice actually intends to preserve life for both the killer and the victim. It talks about how much he actually values life. Now, it's not that God, I believe, is unjust, but only that God is the one who defines justice. He's the one that says what's right and wrong, but I don't like that. He doesn't really care if you don't like Okay, That's why if we actually go straight through the Bible, it should offend us because uh, we're sinful, and it says things that offend my emotions at times, my intellect at times. But that's the difference between, I guess, someone who submits to God's word regardless of my emotion, experience, and intellect and someone who does not. Now, God is the one who defines justice both in his family and outside of it. Now, think about this. As you're thinking about Israel, before we go to our own family, our own people of God as we know now, the people of God then, outside the family of God, Outside Israel, outside the family of God, the only justice was condemnation and judgment of sin. That's it. What's that mean for us today? It means eternal hell. That's what it means. Those outside the family of God, those who have not been saved by Jesus, those who have not been adopted into his family, by grace, through faith, and let's do a caveat here, boop, there was nothing special about Israel. Okay? God even tells them, uh, by the way, I didn't choose you because you were like some fantastic people. I chose you because I decided to put my love on you. That's it. Okay, back to that. So when I say adopt into God's family, it's not like he's going out adopting the best. Okay? God saves sinners. That's the only people he saves. But anyone that is not in God's family, the only thing they have is condemnation and judgment. That's a hard truth of God. But the beautiful other side to that is that within His family, by grace, through faith in God as Savior, in Jesus as Savior, we are adopted into His family. Not because anything we do, but because of everything He has done we are adopted into His family. It's a family that's centered on the worship of Him. And it's within these boundaries that we experience grace and mercy. His justice ensures our life by wrathing or putting judgment on Jesus. But that's only for the people in His family. Now, we see... In Israel here, he ensures an incredible amount of justice that we, honestly, as a culture, use as model for our own laws. Where he not only says the life is important for the person being murdered, but also for the person accidentally killed. He is a God of justice. He is a God of love. He is a God concerned with preserving life. And we see that God's standard here is that for the murdered... A life is required. 
to atone for that sin. So if someone is murdered, the person who murders is condemned to death. But if they're accidentally killed, there's a couple things. There's still a consequence for the killer. Why is there a consequence? It's just an accident, right? Well, the, the thing about it is that death still is a result of sin. Any death. So there's still a consequence here. And the city becomes, for this guy who accidentally killed, a place of refuge, which it is, but also a little bit of a place of exile, at least in the context of Israel here. He or she will go into these cities. He'll plead his case. And even if they declare, like, okay, it's, uh, they'll either say, no, it wasn't an accident, you're condemned to death, or they'll say, well, it is an accident, but now he can't leave. He has to stay there. And if he leaves the boundaries of that city, the blood relative who is waiting to kill them has a legal right to kill him. He won't be guilty if he kills him, if he leaves those boundaries. So he has to stay there, and for how long? Until the high priest, the current high priest, dies. In some sense, and I don't know exactly how it all how we can explain it all, but there's still a death required for his sin. There's still an atonement for the sin. There is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. And all of this does, these cities of refuge, yes, Jesus is my refuge, because he died. And so it points us to the book of Hebrews, is a great place to see it in Hebrews 2 says, therefore, he had to be made, speaking of Jesus, like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He absorbed the wrath of God, in this case, not by like a high priest making sacrifices, but by dying as the sacrifice. So regardless... There's atonement that has to take place for sins. And when we talk about Jesus being our refuge, quite frankly, um, we're simply declaring that I need forgiveness because I'm a guilty sinner. Whether by accident or not. There's atonement required for sins, but there's atonement provided through Christ. And quite frankly, hearing Jesus is my refuge, I need to hear that sometimes more than others. There are some weeks that just flat out suck. Where I feel more sinful. It doesn't mean I am any more sinful. But there are some weeks that, you know what, when I think of Jesus as my refuge, it has much more meaning for me than others. Because sin does at times catch you. Sin sometimes does overtake you. And to hear that there is a city of refuge, who is Jesus, if you will, who has made atonement for my sins, and I don't want to sit in the guilt, I don't want to sit in the despair of my sin and be forgiven. I need to hear that more and more. And those who are in the family of God have that. That never changes positionally. You always have that. Those who are not in the family of God, you have nothing but judgment. You have nothing but judgment. So you have these cities of refuge 
where I think in, in what's happening in the land, as God is kind of putting a capstone on everything he was promising to do here, you have God's law being established. God's law is good. God's law is right. These cities of refuge kind of affirm that we are following God's law by giving these refuge for the, for the accidental killings. Then, in, as you get into chapter 1, 21, he starts to distribute to the Levites. Now, the cities of refuge are also Levitical cities, so you're still talking about really the same experience. That's why I put the chapters together. And in chapter 21, here's what he says. Then the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites came to Eleazar the priest and to Joshua the son of Nun and to the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel. And they said to them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan, The Lord commanded through Moses that we be given cities to dwell in, along with their pasture lands for our livestock. So by command of the Lord, the people of Israel gave to the Levites the following cities and pasture lands out of their inheritance. I think it's hugely important to watch throughout the book of Joshua, beginning as you get to the end, how many times they say, by the command of the Lord, they did this. By the command of the Lord, they did this. It's not like, let's just make up stuff as we go. They are following God's word. So at Shiloh, the Levites step up and say, not we want ours, we want what God promised we would have. Our inheritance. So in the wilderness, prior to going into the land of Canaan, Moses had commanded that the tribe of Levi receive an inheritance, but not land. Not like the other tribes. They would get instead 48 cities. If we put that map up of the Levitical cities, you can see those are all the cities spread throughout the... um, land of Canaan. Just keep that up there. So, 42 of them were Levitical cities, purely, and then 6 of them were the cities of refuge that we just talked about. Joshua 13 had said about the same Levites that their inheritance were the offerings of fire to God. In other words, the office that they had, and Moses had already said this, the role that they had, the God-ordained responsibility and blessing of being priests for the land was their inheritance. And when I preached on Joshua 13, I basically said, it's God who is their inheritance. They are more blessed in many ways than the others who just got land. They had the privilege and honor of upholding God's honor as their role. And so the inheritance that they receive is obviously not land, The strange thing is, if you look back at both Levi and Simeon, Simeon has the little circle of land in the midst of of Judah. And both Levi and Simeon seem like you get the short end of the stick in the whole experience, because they don't get land. Now, God used that as a blessing, but that's not how it started. Simeon and Levi are interesting guys. Actually, if you look in Genesis 48, when Jacob is blessing his sons, he goes through and prays for all of his sons. You remember... Jim talked about the whole Ephraim Manasseh, you know, switcheroo, right? He's blessing all his sons, but he's also cursing some of them. Simeon and Levi are in the curse group, okay? And he basically prays for them. He says, you guys are violent guys. And as a result, you're not going to basically get an inheritance. You're going to be dispersed among Israel. Time, like, great, thanks, Dad, okay? They didn't really know what that meant necessarily, 
But what happened is like, well, why? Well, if you go back, say, why were they violent? If you go back to Genesis 34, I know, history lesson. This is a, there's a woman or a sister. They had a sister named Dinah. And I used to tell Candace she should name her band Dinah and her, Dinah and her Brothers. Cause I thought it was a great story. Okay? If you read 34, you'll see what Dinah is about. Dinah basically caught the eye of uh, a prince of Shechem. And you know the city of Shechem is the city where they did the big quest field worship public experience between the two mountains, right? Well, before, many years before, that was uh, Canaanite. There was a, a guy who was a prince of Shechem, and he caught the eye. He was like, oh, okay, Dinah's really cute. Seduced her, and therefore dishonored her by sleeping with her, basically. And the bros find out, and they're none too pleased. But the dad comes and says, hey, my son... Dinah, you know, maybe they get married. And the brothers are like, no, that's not happening. And it's not happening because you are, we're going to bring shame upon our people because you are not part of our people. And so they decide, though, that, well, you know, on second thought, we're just going to require a really big bride price from you. And here's the bride price. We want all of your men to be circumcised. Fantastic, okay? So we'll do it because my son needs to have this bride, okay? So they circumcise all their males, and while they're healing, Simeon and Levi go and kill them all. Pretty violent. At the same level, I go, I hope my boys protect their sister, Old Testament style way at times, but you know, I, can, I, I appreciate it at some level. But as a result of them doing this vengeful thing, not in accord with what God would have them do, they're cursed. But what we see is the beauty, the beauty of God's sovereignty and even taking a cursing that He Himself really ordained and transforming it into a blessing for Levi especially, for all of Israel, and ultimately for the world. Through his son Christ. So, without a specific inheritance, then, for many reasons, the Levites come and say, Well, we need these pasture lands because they still have to provide for their families. And that would allow them, they, they do get, this is where um, really you talk about employing pastors. It begins back here. Paul talks and references the fact that the Levites were supported by Israel, basically. The tithe comes from that support. And they tithe the Levites, so their, their basic provisions are given for uh, tithing. But they also have to feed their family with, it's not enough, if you will. So they have livestock and that nature that they at least care for. Not for economic reasons, like a big chunk of land so they can make money and sell and do business, just for their families. And so that's why they are given the pasture lands in addition to the cities. And they have the responsibility then of preserving the spiritual welfare of Israel, and strangely, the health of the tribes, i.e., they are supporting the Levites, is like this, this weird condition. If they're doing their job, and they are centering all things on the worship of God, they should be giving back to God through their time, and all should well together. doesn't work well, but that's what the plan is. So you ask, well, what do the Levites specifically have to do? What do these priests have to do? Now, they had some very pragmatic responsibilities. So in Joshua 21, you have three sons. 
three sons, okay? Three, yeah, I know, I'm English teacher. So three sons of Levi, okay? And those three sons are named Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Okay, so it starts, it lays out, and to the sons, or to the, to the Gershonites, and the Kohathites, and the Merarites. He's talking about the three sons of Levi. If you go back into the beginning of Numbers, they had certain responsibilities. So like, what did priests do? Well, they actually cared for the tabernacle of God that we saw set up last week. And they have very specific roles in doing that care. You have, um, let's see, the Merites carried and cared for the frames, the hardware, if you will, of the tabernacle. So when they broke it down, they took like the sticks, the things that made it, they would care for them, and then they would be responsible to carry them to whatever the next location was. You also had the Gershonites who cared for the coverings of the tabernacle, all the heavy curtains and the outside skins and all those things. And then you had the Kohathites who cared for the uh, utensils and the different furnishings of the church, of church, of the tabernacle. So each had their own individual role, and they would come together and preserve or protect and build the tabernacle. Now, we have to be careful because it sounds like they're like you know, glorified janitors a little bit, like God's janitors, and they make sure the pots and pans are clean. That's not really the case. Whenever it talks about them doing these acts, it uses lines like protecting and guarding. They were guarding the tabernacle of God so that they could protect the people of God. The priests were in charge, in many ways, of protecting and preserving the purity of worship in the land by ensuring that true worship took place centered around the tabernacle, but all throughout the land. And they did this by leading Israel in worship, okay, through sacrifices and different festivals. They did this by teaching the Word of God, which is what they did. And they did this by defending the truth of God, not from outsiders, from within. Now, that's hugely important. Now, I don't know about you, but we often, and if you are a man, you need to go on a Wednesday night men's study coming up. It's going to be Flipping awesome, okay? And we're going to go through five-week chunks, I think it's five, could be six, of what it means to be a prophet, priest, and king. And it just gives us a picture of what Christ was perfect of and what we're aspiring to do through him. But the priest one is the one I've never been really comfortable with. Because it just felt kind of fluffy, okay? Now, prophet... Oh, I can be a prophet. Let me proclaim and tell you how sinful you are. I don't even care if you listen, okay? That's what prophets did in the Old Testament. They come in, you're a sinner, turn or die, walk away, okay? That's all they cared about. The kings, they were very organized, right? They're like, where are we weak? Where are we strong? We need to lead, those kind of things. A very different pr- Priests were always like, tell me your feelings. You know, how you, that's, the whole conf- that's what it felt like. Like, I don't want to be a priest. Oh, contraire. The priests are awesome. Now, let me just show you. When we talk about the priests preserving the purity of worship, we think of like, well, they just do that in priestly ways. Like, you know, they make sure that they're singing enough songs at, you know, church time, whatever. No, 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 no. Remember, okay, much of, of this whole sermon today is to convince you that you are to be a priest. 
in the portion that you've given you. And I think, actually, that's the one thing that we're worst at. The priests are not pansies. The priests are warriors. Let me prove it. I'm not making this up. That's what's so great about the Bible. I just read it and it works. All right. You all remember, I think, maybe you don't. If you saw Charlton Heston, you did. Okay, Ten Commandments, Golden Calf. Okay, Moses goes up on the mountain. God's making him some cool tablets. Joshua's actually with him at some level. They're coming back down. They hear noise at the camp. And Joshua's like, I think it's a war. And Moses is like, that ain't no war. That's dancing. Okay? They come upon him and they're having some big frat party style orgy freaky dance thing going on. Okay? It's like, what is going on? And they're worshiping this golden cow. Good night, Moses says to his brother. What have you done? Okay? Aaron, the priest supposed to be protecting this. It was his idea. So, Moses comes down on them hard, and rightfully so. Breaks the tablets. He eventually makes them eat the calf. Grinds it up into powders. Like, yeah, go ahead and drink your calf shake. Okay, see how you like it. But, there's a passage in there that's amazing about the priests. And this is where the priests became ordained by God as priests. Exodus 32, verse 26. Check this out. Having come upon this scene, it says, Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, quote, Who is on the Lord's side? It's like... Draws a line. Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. All... The sons of Levi. Verse 27, he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, you priests, and go to and fro from the gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day, about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. As a priest, as a warrior, fighting for the purity of worship of the one true God. Now, we've seen by the cities of refuge... God's justice is affirmed. Okay, we've got laws we're going to follow. Then he comes in and he brings in the Levites to say, now we're going to ensure through these guys that it's followed. And he does this not by giving them a little piece of land or a city, but he disperses all the cities throughout all the portion amongst all the tribes. So what? Well, I believe God ensures the purity of worship is going to be protected throughout the land. And it says in verse 41, the cities of the Levites in the midst of the possession of the people of Israel were in all 48 cities with their pasture lands. That's 42 plus a 6 refuge. 
And these cities each had its pasture lands around it. And so it was with all these cities. So hear, hear me when I say this. Especially those who are experienced brokenness. What I mean is unfulfillment, despair, frustration, discouragement in whatever portion that you have. I do believe that the fruitfulness and your joy and your contentment and your satisfaction is only possible with the pure worship of God and His Word within your portion. That means that there is not a portion of your portion that is not to be governed by God and His Word. There is not a portion of your... We're so good at segmenting our life into those spiritual things and non-spiritual things. That's not how God intended it. God intended for your entire portion as He distributes the Levitical cities for all of it to be protected. There's not work and then Christianity. There's not marriage and then my faith. There's not my parenting that I can figure out with some psychobabble and then my Bible over here. Your entire portion is to be governed by the Word of God. And I do believe that we fail most... We don't fail necessarily with creating our borders or even in knowing our roles, but we most often fail, I think, in establishing the pure worship of God in our homes to begin with and even in our churches. And I don't think our communities have a chance if either of those are wiped out. Worship is a lifestyle, and you've heard that, but it is a dysfunctional one. We without doubt have a worship disorder, and that's why we constantly go back to the one true high priest, constantly go back to purify our worship, constantly remind ourselves of what Jesus has done and what he intends for us to do by his grace through faith in his work. And the funny thing is, even if we succeed, and I think a lot of us get there, we, like, we succeed in figuring out our boundaries and we succeed, we end up building a really great life. And we build a life that we're, it looks really responsible. Like, you know what? I'm, I'm a responsible husband. I'm a responsible wife. I'm a responsible employee. I'm a responsible young man or young woman. We even build a great life that we go, I'm a very moral man and woman. That doesn't mean we end up being a very faithful one. We build a great life that has nothing to do with eternal life. Because it has nothing to do with the worship of God and everything to do with just having some kind of security apart from God. We end up loving many more things than actually loving God. That's not God's intent. His intent is for us to be worshipers. He released you if you are a Christian. He released you not to be a good person. That's weird to say that. But he didn't tell Israel, I'm going to free you from slavery so that you can be gooder. Okay? He freed them from slavery so that they could worship him, which will make them good. Don't try to gain God's approval by being good and that some way worships him. It's through Christ alone, worshiping at the cross, admitting you are broken and totally dependent on him. And it's that transformation that through you produces fruit. Can't happen the other way around.
So we'll close it out in the verse 43. Once the priesthood is scattered throughout the land, you have the writer at the end basically praising God for the faithfulness to keep his promise, his many promises. It says, Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there, and the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. And not one of all their enemies had withstood them. For the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word, not one word of all the good promises the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. I love how the writer is so emphatic. Not one word. And honestly, just even right now, I start thinking, okay, what are the one words that I don't think God actually is going to make good on? I mean, really. I remember there was a time when I had a big sign on my printer that simply was a question, because I used to look at the printer all the time. Well, not like staring at it in some weird way. It just was there. And I put it on there, and it was basically like, do you really believe God's promises? Do you really believe them? He shows here that not one word, and you go, well, what did God promise exactly? Well, verse 43, he had promised several times to Isaac, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to Moses, and to Joshua to give the offspring of Abraham an inheritance of land, and he did. Many years later, but he did. Verse 44, he promised that they would possess and dwell in the land. They would live in abundance. They would live with joy. They would live in a land flowing with milk and honey. They did. Verse 45. He promised to drive out all the enemies from the land. We go, well, they're not all gone, but they are without doubt, according to the last uh, passage we read, subdued. They're gone. They're driven out. In verse 45 again, he promised to give them rest in the land, and it says here that they had rest. So he makes promises to Abraham and nothing keeps God from fulfilling his promises. Not even the sin of Abraham's offspring. I'm so glad that God's promises to me are not dependent upon my success in whatever. That he is faithful even if I am not. And the, the beauty of this is, though God fulfilled His promises in a very literal way to Abraham's offspring, the Bible later says, through Paul and Galatians, that the promises weren't really to them specifically. They were, but it points us to Christ. And he says in Galatians, where he's speaking clearly about faith as a means to salvation and not works, He says in verse 16 of Galatians 3, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So all the promises to Israel, all the portions, all the dwellings, all of the honor and the victories, all the rest and the true inheritance was actually in Jesus And it set the stage leading us to Christ. The truth is this. Taken as it is, there is absolutely no genuine hope in land that just is going to die. 
There is no genuine hope in earthly victories that, quite frankly, are short-lived. There is no hope in any home you could build in this earthly place that will eventually be gone. There's no hope there. As much as it's cool to have a big chunk of land, someday you're going to die. That's why the genuine, true inheritance resides with Christ. It was all leading and pointing to Him. And if, without doubt, you are rejecting Christ, if you are trying to work your way to God or you don't care, know that there is one promise reserved for you. One. Death. Apart from Him. But in Christ, those who have declared their sinfulness, those whose eyes have been opened by God, those who in faith have put their trust in what Jesus has done, those are the ones that have no condemnation for sin. Not now, not ever. God is faithful even if we are faithless to those that are His. And without doubt, there is a life. And without doubt, there is a refuge from my own brokenness and the brokenness that comes into my life from other people. And without doubt, there is a rest. But it's not here. It is in Christ. And that's why when I call all of us to be worshipers, we don't understand that, quite frankly, knowing what your borders are, knowing what your responsibilities are, really doesn't matter a snarf if you are not purely worshiping God. And how do you purely worship God? Do you just do really good things? You confess your faith in Christ. And what about when I sin? You confess that you are forgiven in Christ. What about when I can't overcome that next thing? You confess that you are powerless and you'll need Christ to overcome it. It all goes back to Christ. Imagine a family, a home, a church that is so centered on worshiping Christ, whether you have trials of prosperity or trials of poverty. We always have trials. That's unavoidable. But without doubt, we need more priests. And we need to be a priest in all aspects of our life. And so I'll close with a passage out of Ephesians 1. Reminding you specifically, if you are leading a portion, if you are a man, woman, who is leading a portion, leading a family, leading a church, leading a community, leading a, wherever you are leading, know that the best thing you can do is live with an eternal perspective as a priest preserving the worship of God and reminding yourself that your inheritance is not here. Ephesians 1 says this, and we'll close. Chapter 1, verse 11. In Him, in Him, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things, good and bad, according to the counsel of His will, so that we who are the first hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. There's your purpose. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. 
there is a possession waiting for those who are His. In some sense, we do find rest here. In some sense, we do find life here. But in a very real sense, it's not here. And Jesus told us, told His disciples, until He comes a second time, we take communion in remembrance of what He has done and what He's going to do. So I pray today as you come up, perhaps you've been a really crappy priest. That might mean you've got everything figured out and you're a phenomenal leader in whatever you do, but you're not worshiping God. That's sinful and needs to be confessed. And if not, it's going to bring destruction to your family. But as you confess and as you're cleansed, God says He is faithful and just to forgive and cleanse you and empower you to be the priest that, honestly, you can't be on your own.